Our guest today is Mas'ud Hayoun, an award-winning journalist. He's the author of When We Were Arabs, a book which tells the story of his grandparents' lives, who were Arab Jews from North Africa. There are very particular policy documents that I cite that discuss the full and multi-generational disconnection of Jewish Arab people from the greater Arab peoples. The way that Jewish Arabs were weaponized that our bodies were instrumentalized against our homelands by the early Zionist intelligence, which had already infiltrated by the 1940s, and that people sought to drive a wedge between Jewish Arab people and the rest of Arab society. We started seeing a lot of attempts on the part of Zionists to try to weaponize our refugee status against Palestinian people in a way that doesn't make sense. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine and bring you stories, interviews, and commentary with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl. And I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok here, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and Mikey Intifada, if you've been logging on to Twitter to say, define genocide. <laughs> yeah, I read that tweet several times in the last week or so. Today, we're going to be bringing you guys some of the latest updates with respect to the Global Intifada of Unity before we get into an interview with Mas'ud Hayoun, the author of When We Were Arabs. So first thing to report, we have some great BDS news. The journalist Abby Martin won her lawsuit in Georgia. You all may remember that Abby Martin's speaking engagement at the University of Georgia was canceled because she refused to sign a state-mandated oath pledging not to engage in a boycott of Israel. She later took her case before the courts, and the court ruled that the anti-BDS law in Georgia violated the First Amendment. Overseas, the Maldives suspended all ties with Israel, showing solidarity with Palestinians. The only thing that they had been importing from Israel were certain medical products because everything had been banned since 2014, but they officially suspended all ties. There were dock workers in Livorno, Italy, who refused to load weapons onto a ship headed to occupied Palestine. They put their bodies on the line. But the Italian embassy in Israel intervened, did a little behind the scenes, and made it so that they had to put the weapons onto the ship. Do we know how long they were able to disrupt the shipment for? A couple hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, this reminds me of the story of Albert Systems. Protesters on drone factory roof drank rainwater as police blocked supplies. Pro-Palestinian protesters spent six days on the roof of a drone factory, say supporters were arrested for trying to throw water to them. So the activists were occupying Albert Systems factory in Leicester. Eventually, uh, by Friday, two activists decided to come down in order to spread their rations further. They were arrested once they came down. Eventually, the officers raided their homes and seized, quote unquote, left wing pamphlets. In the United States, we saw Bernie Sanders out of the Senate and AOC and others out of the House 
tried to block the additional weapon sale of $735 million of weapons to Israel. Of course, this is on top of the $3.8 billion U.S. dollars that the United States gives Israel each year. We know that the State Department is supporting the sale. It's unclear whether or not the weapon sale is going to go through at this stage as of the time of recording of this podcast. In the UK, over 300,000 individuals have signed a petition to calling on sanctions against Israel. Also, a British MP called for sanctions on Israel as the civilian casualties mounted in Gaza. Similarly, an Irish MP called for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador from Ireland. So there are certainly some steps being taken in the EU to respond to the latest Israeli aggressions. And the Irish Senate recently passed an Israeli boycott bill which we will provide you with further information on in upcoming episodes. So I think, Michael, what we need to do is just make some quick commentary on what we have seen coming out of this global intifada of unity. It's very clear that Zionists have lost many things in their latest assaults on Gaza. They have certainly lost the presumption of innocence. They lost control over the narrative as we have seen them increasingly display sort of public meltdowns, attempting to do damage control, attempting to reiterate the same narrative that they have stuck to for years, that, you know, Israel has a right to defend themselves against, you know, of course, a civilian population, that, oh, no, that this is all about Hamas. In contrast to that, what we're seeing is we're seeing Palestinians narrate their own stories to the world, who is now starting to listen. We're now finding that it's acceptable to say things like occupation, like ethnic cleansing, like colonialism, like apartheid on TV and in the newspapers, without the immediate fear of being gaslit and accused right away of anti-Semitism. So it's clear that even in the mainstream media, in certain aspects of reporting, that the Zionist narrative has lost some of its typical allies. And, you know, we're even seeing it in amongst politicians, like with the attempts to try to block the weapons sale. Whether or not they are able to actually do this, I think in some ways is besides the point because the fact that this was even being entertained as a possibility is already so much further than we could have imagined in you know the US mainstream political landscape by contrast Palestinians i think want a great deal we are is becoming easier for us to narrate our stories because we are relying on independent media, on social media, even though we are dealing with a great deal of censorship. But there's the sheer amount of information and Palestinians who are sharing their stories are really making it possible for for the Palestinian story to be told despite all of the censorship. Google searches about Palestine increased and those Palestinians and allies all around the world uplifted the voices of those on the ground who were reporting on and showing us what it was like to live under occupation and to be subject to Israeli apartheid. I just want to reiterate that the fight is not over because the bombing stopped. There is still so much injustice to dismantle the blockade, settlers, occupied East Jerusalem, apartheid in 48. It's all got to go. The struggle continues until every person under occupation is free, until colonizers are dealt with appropriately, whether it be by the court or the sword, and all people living under colonialism have their land back, until one day Lara and I can enjoy tea in the old city of Jerusalem after she's returned home to help rebuild Gaza. 
That was beautiful, Michael. I think it's a great place to end just before we get into our interview with Masoud Hayoun. By the way, for our listeners who pay really close attention to details, we recorded this introduction on a separate day as the interview with Masoud. Our guest today is Masoud Hayoun, an award-winning journalist. He has written for Al Jazeera English, Parts Unknown, and The Atlantic. He's the author of When We Were Arabs, a book which tells the story of his grandparents' lives, who were Arab Jews from North Africa, and also infuses historical accounts of key events from the 20th century, including the reality of living in a colonial and post-colonial era, what the Zionist movement meant for Arab Jews, and how these events shaped his own identity today. Before we get into today's podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe if you're here on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, please subscribe and leave a review. It only takes two minutes, but it has a huge impact and allows our podcast to reach more people. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. If you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. We might even read your email on air. Feel free to also engage with us on our Instagram. We're super active at the palestinepod. One of the strengths that I think is really important about this podcast is from my understanding as a non-Palestinian of how things end up happening with people is that they view so much of Palestine as a political cause and not as just regular everyday people who are supporting human rights. So I think Mm -hmm. it's beautiful uh, that you guys mix all of your discussions of things that are happening with just people being human beings and not necessarily activists. Because I do know that since I wrote this book, which is not even squarely on Palestine, Palestine is a part of this book, but not a story that I could ever endeavor to tell. The response has been that I'm an operative for for Qatar, or that (laughs) I, because I worked for Al Jazeera back in the day, even though I had so many issues with Al Jazeera, and I... Qatar are very known for loving and employing gay people. Exactly. (laughs) Like, I was... I was not their pet. If they were looking for like an (laughs) operative, I wrote a lot about porn for Al Jazeera America and like went to Salem and wrote about the Halloween industry. Like I wrote a lot about like (laughs) stuff that, that Jewish people would also consider to be shaken yet. Like I, I don't think I was anybody's favorite in the Al Jazeera ecosystem and definitely bitched from the moment I set foot in that place until the end of when I set foot in that place because they did hire a lot of Zionists. And that's part of what I think is important about when we were Arabs is it is 100% true that there was an old woman who decided, who came to anti-Zionism later in life, not that she was ever kind of decidedly a Zionist, but she was not a, a person who was equipped really or allowed to question status quo within our community and who had revolutionary ideas late in life and and that she was a grandma and that there are grandmas who are Jewish grandmas who are, are probably kind of predisposed to Zionism who are part of this global awakening where we're understanding the true meaning of human rights. It doesn't exactly align with the neoliberal one that we accept in the United States or that we export to people with our soft power movies and and porn. So anyway. So poignant. Like I could listen to you talk forever. Henri, I hope so. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like I just, I actually did. I listened to the audio book. So yeah, I I really did. Oh, Michael, I'm so sorry. 
I was just about to tell you that your voice is so soothing. It's like if chamomile tea was a person. Thank you so much. You know, I feel like because of my latent homophobia, it is also very much a function of my family being a religious Jewish family. I hate the sound of my voice and I hate what's feminine about my voice. You are who you are and it's a beautiful thing. And thank you for being yeah. here. And thank you for being you. So, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Let's get into it. So Masoud, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. It's such an exciting endeavor that you guys have started something so beautiful uh, in a pandemic. Uh, and uh, it strikes me as so interesting that I'm on this podcast when we're all watching what's happening in Jerusalem with s- s- broken hearts and also inspiration by the resistance of the, the people in Jerusalem. Yeah, absolutely. The book is called When We Were Arabs. Uh, a Jewish family's forgotten history. This is what it looks like. It's a beautiful cover. And the book starts with a declaration. You say, I am a Jewish Arab. I am a curiosity or a detestable thing. Some say I don't exist, or if I did, I no longer do. You also write that this book is a wholesale rejection of sentimentality, well-meaning as it is, that sets the Jewish Arab in the imagined past. Elsewhere, you talk about how your Arabness is Jewish and it is retaliatory. You say that you are an Arab because it is what you and your parents have been told not to be for generations. And you also mention how you and your parents were told to stop living in solidarity with other Arabs. So many of our listeners might not have the slightest clue what you're talking about. Where do these ideas come from? You know, they, they, they may seem completely foreign to our audience. So can you start perhaps by just elaborating on these ideas? Why are Arab Jews a thing of the past? Why is it a revolutionary act to own your identity today as an Arab Jew? And why have you made it your mission, at least now, for now, to reclaim the, the Jewish Arab identity? First, I want to begin with what you say, which is very interesting about the nostalgia and trying to kind of do away with the sentimentality. Both be extremely sentimental and nostalgic for this particular generation, for Oscar and Daida, my grandparents' generation, the last generation of Jewish Arab people to live in the Arab world, and to do away with that sentimentality. It's kind of a nod to the fact that, at least in my experience of the Arab American community, there's some, and, and beyond the Arab American community of Arabs still living in the Arab world, where it's still possible to live in the Arab world with the intervention of Western forces until now, that there's this kind of toxic nostalgia, this toxic melancholy for this generation that was fundamentally flawed and not just flawed, but ended up being genocidal. This was the 1948 generation. This was a generation that considered what was Westernizing what was globalizing in a murderous sort of way to be glorious and cosmopolitan and wonderful about the Arab world such that we can't even begin to remember what life was like before the Zaman al-Gamil of uh, the beautiful era of Egyptian cinema. And so at once I want to say that, yes, I buy into this nostalgia for Abdel Halim Hafiz and Asmahan and Um Kalthum and all of our greats from the Egyptian cinema of a certain generation. And then I realized that living in the past is toxic. My 
grandparents or my grandmother, who was a co-author on this project until she passed away, are fundamentally existentialist and socialist people who believe in living a future-oriented life, not a, a bad faith-oriented life where we look toward the, I mean, to use existentialist terminology is a little unfitting for Palestine Pod because South and Beauvoir were famously Zionist. If they can take Yala, you can take one quote from a Zionist. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> we didn't want to live with the bad faith of looking constantly toward the past. We wanted to decide for ourselves and not for the rest of Arab people what Arabness was going forward. It didn't really matter to us what academia has to say about what Arabness was in the past. We ascribed to an Arabness that was building itself just before Oscar and Dida's generation, the Renaissance period of Arab societies. And we build off of that and bypass while acknowledging the devastation of 1948 to decide what that Arabness will look like for us going forward. In terms of how we were divorced from our civilization, from the rest of the Arab peoples, which is a term that I like to use, I think that Part of me finds the semantics of this book to be ridiculous because semantics are ridiculous in a time where people are dying. But phrasing is very important as well. That's why I discuss the difference between Jewish Arab and Arab Jew and, and Sephardic and Mizrahi and all of the things that we could end up calling ourselves. We were divorced from our civilizations because of very specific policies on the part of not just the French government, but European governments jockeying for power. One of the things that this book does that I'm happy about or proud of Daida and myself about, Daida, my grandmother, for having done, is drawing a line, very simple line, between the European conquest of our homelands in North Africa and the European conquest of Palestine, of which many Jewish people who may or may not identify as Arab are a part now. And so um, kind of viewing the continuity between policies of devastation and dispossession in North Africa and drawing that line toward what happened in 1948 or seeing how one colonial project nourished another and why there were very particular and explicit. So not just a, this isn't a conspiracy theory. I think Arabs are always being stereotyped as buying into conspiracy theories. There are very particular policy documents that I cite in When We Were Arabs that discuss the full and multi-generational disconnection of Jewish Arab people, Jewish Arab societies from the greater Arab peoples, which is a term to go back to semantics that I borrow from Nawal al-Sa'adawi, the recently deceased, uh, very problematic and beautiful uh, Egyptian feminist, who is very much one of the co-authors of this book insofar as I never thought of what modern-day Arab people were in the present until I read Hidden Face of Eve, until I read somebody who is Arab from an Arab nation write about what she calls the Arab peoples, what she calls a pluralistic, a very diverse, a very powerful and strong group of peoples that could stand to live in solidarity with each other as opposed to so much of what we see now, the, the policies of divide and conquer that keep on manifesting themselves in different ways in our homelands. To that end, can you talk about how colonial movements have 
manipulated North African and other Jews as agents of the occupation. Specific example that comes to mind is the Egyptian Jews who were endangered during the Levon affair, a false flag operation where a group of Egyptian Jews was recruited by the Israeli military intelligence to plant bombs inside of Egyptian, American, and British-owned civilian targets, cinemas, libraries, and American educational centers. Exactly. That's an extremely important point to bring up, and I deal with it in the book. The part where I talk about the way that Jewish Arabs were weaponized against their homelands by the early uh, Zionist intelligence, which had already infiltrated by uh, the 1940s Arab societies to a very significant degree. It's a list, which I think is a very powerful literary device. I'm, I'm thinking of a book that I'm forgetting the title. I think it's What We Carried about the things that U.S. soldiers in the devastation and occupation of Vietnam carried with them. And so the, the list is a very powerful kind of literary device. I, I listed the different times after most of my family had already departed the Arab world that our bodies were instrumentalized against our homelands and that people sought to drive a wedge between Jewish Arab people and the rest of Arab society uh, by sowing doubt about whether it was possible for a Jewish Arab person to continue to be a functioning part of an Arab society without posing a risk. One of the reasons why we ended up writing this book was because uh, Daida was a very news literate person and we started seeing a lot of attempts on the part of Zionists to very illogically counter Palestinian claims to refugee status by saying that we were made refugees. The point of my book is not to say that we weren't made refugees, we were absolutely made refugees. My, my grandfather's family lost everything that they had with the exception of a suitcase a person and 300 uh, I think Egyptian pounds per family or per person. I, I don't remember. I mentally blocked out a lot of the book because it was difficult to write mentally and uh, emotionally because my grandmother had died and then I had to stick my head in her life. Anyway, back to the idea. There, there is an attempt on the part of Zionists to try to weaponize our refugee status against Palestinian people in a way that doesn't make sense to me logically, uh, that doesn't need to make sense logically in the same way that Trump didn't need to make sense logically. It's a, a power move on the part of uh, extreme dictatorship and genocidal kind of autocrats to not need to make sense. If anybody deserves to pay reparations to Jewish Arab people for what happened in the disconnection of Jewish Arab people from their Arab homelands, it's Israel. It's not any other entity than Israel. They absolutely had total disregard for whether we ended up slaughtered en masse or imprisoned en masse because people in the 1940s, understandably, uh, I mean, not that they should have, but we're still understanding the concept of collective punishment. We still have a hard time in the United States not co uh, collectively punishing groups of people for the acts of a few. They risked our lives by painting Jewish Arab people as Zionist operatives in our homelands. If anyone should foot the bill for paying reparations to people whose lives were endangered and whose property was stolen by 1948, 
it is the perpetrators of 1948. That is logic. That is what makes sense. And so this book, a lot of people have commented that this book is a counter-argument to the call for reparations for Jewish people from Arab nations, whether they consider themselves to be Arab or not. So I use the term Jewish Arab very particularly to describe myself and people who identify with this legacy and these peoples. That's absolutely not the case. It is absolutely the case that I believe that we were made refugees. My family suffered in my opinion, nothing next to what Palestinian families ended up suffering, but were made refugees, very much struggled for generations to find footing after leaving everything that was ours and that we knew about ourselves. It is absolutely not arguing away the fact that we were made refugees. It is observing the very patent manifest fact that we were made refugees by Zionist operatives. That those are the, the that that is the entity that that must be made to bear responsibility for all of this. On the other side of the coin, there are a lot of people in the Palestine activism community who would like to see Jewish Arab people at least welcomed back to their home societies. And I think that of course that is very important conversation to have. It's an important conversation to have as well that that would cost a lot of money for Arab societies to have to reabsorb people who were funneled into a Zionist project. It absolutely shouldn't be the responsibility of countries like Tunisia, for example, one of my homelands, to foot the bill for reintegrating Jewish Arab people into our societies, which will absolutely require language lessons, employment, public infrastructure, things that our homelands are struggling with for people currently living there. Israel and the West should foot the burden for that effort to welcome us back to our homelands. That needs to be where that, that comes from. I, I know that it's a long shot, but a lot of this book is about observing things, I think, that are patently logical in the face of the logic. One of them is, for example, the fact that I disagree fundamentally with the term Sephardi because I don't know any of my family to ever have been in Spain. And that a lot of the Sephardic Jews who do identify as Sephardi are initially from Morocco. So, for example, one of the people who I do cite in the book and a, a man who I admire very much, Sion Astidon, who was the head of BDS in Morocco and is a part of a, um, a government accountability organization. His last name is Asidon, which could come from Sidonia in Spain, so he could very well call himself uh, Sephardi. He identifies as Jewish Arab. But Sidonia itself, the name of the city Sidonia, is originally from the Moroccan Amazigh name Eight Saden, which is a small town in Morocco that, like uh, Eit Hayoun, which is where my family comes from, was a small hamlet that kind of ceased to be when the Industrial Revolution came and people who practiced traditional crafts in the Middle Atlas Mountains, where my family is originally from, stopped being able to practice those crafts because of so-called uh, globalization and because there were machines that, could, uh, that were imported from the West that could suddenly do what their families had done by hand for generations. 
So I disagree with the term Sephardi because it's used as a blanket term that's meant to Europeanize people without any known legacy in Europe. And to my mind, a lot of this book is poking at very vast holes in logic. It's what Palestine Pod does on a regular basis to demand journalistically and also kind of just from a human vantage point, accountability to a lack of logic that we are expected to accept in Western society as a matter of course on a regular basis. You hit the nail on the head. We, we talk about Zionist logic or illogic all the time on the Palestine Pod. It comes up all the time because so many of these events that, that we're following in Palestine, as we're observing them, we're expected to just sort of accept them. Uh, they're presented to us as being logical. The entire Zionist project in and of itself is presented to us as an inevitable reality right? The state of Israel is inevitable. It has a right to exist, right? We speak of a right for Israel to exist, whereas no states have a right to exist. I mean, this is not a discourse that we, we have ever used with any other state. But with Israel, there is this particular discourse. And, and you're absolutely right that we, that we constantly try to challenge or at least question, is this logical to begin with? What are we really talking about here? Does this actually abide by conventional notions of what is rational and reasonable and, and, and what people would agree with, you know, in, in, in society? Or is this more nefarious? Is it, is it doing something else? I, I enjoyed, as I was reading the book, your attempt to poke the holes at logical fallacies, at, at, at these narratives that you found profoundly illogical, but from your perspective as an Arab Jew. I truly admired how you broke down the colonial nature of the terms Sephardic and Mizrahi, because I, as an Ashkenazi Jew, wasn't really aware of those, to be honest with you. And so I was just sort of using the blanket terms that those communities have adopted after years of colonialization. Can you, for our listeners, explain the difference between them and also why it is that they are misnomers? Because in your book, you said, we're not the East of anything. This was the center of our life. To, to my mind, that was something that was so powerful to say, uh, to be able to say, to get on a, a kind of a soapbox and start telling people how I view the world. I think that there are a lot of people who talk about uh, constantly the, the map and how the map looks different in different countries. This, this week, uh, my mom and I were really, my mom is my only uh, kind of surviving blood relative. Masu, we cannot hear you at all. Sorry. I'm so sorry. It's I just military intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Messing with our Wi-Fi's. It's just oh, our FBI. Well. They're like, he is he is unraveling the thread <laughs> of lies. That we must get involved. <laughs> That's definitely what, what my grandmother and I thought that we were doing at this time. Questions of kind of spatial illogic were very interesting to me while I was writing that very particular part of the book. First of all, I'm not Spanish at all. Nobody in my family speaks Spanish or what is considered to be the, the Jewish form of Spanish, Ladino, that, uh, that communities that in earnest did move from Spain to other countries after the Spanish Inquisition still speak in the same way that some communities still speak Yiddish, but that they've also fallen to a kind of a homogenization of 
what uh, so-called Jewish culture has become or has been made out to be. Uh, I'm not Spanish. It's illogical. The, the, the Mediterranean isn't that small and that much of a kind of just like a, a flash in the pan that my ancestry can be reimagined to a place that none of us really know anything about, honestly. And that's not to say that I don't want to be Spanish. I mean, if I were Spanish, I'd, I'd own it and enjoy it. And I love the Movida movies from uh, Almodovar and very much of the Spanish culture. If I were Spanish, I uh, might not have written when we were Arabs and maybe there wouldn't be so much of a, a book there, but I think I'd, I'd live my bliss. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of, of uh, Mizrahi, I don't think that I am from the East. I think that a lot of Jewish people who even some who identify as Jewish Arabs were upset that I don't identify with a term that has been useful to Jewish Arab people living in occupied Palestine who have been activists against the uh, systematic kind of socioeconomic otherization of Jewish Arab people that existed in 1948 and that persists in different forms today. There have been very intense conversations that I've had with people who themselves identify as anti-Zionist Jewish Arab people who are upset that I don't live Mizrahiness. And I have been very upset with those people, uh, specifically because the Jewish Arab experience as lived by people in occupied Palestine is a Jewish Arab experience, but should not be made to dictate the experience of people living elsewhere. I think it falls back on this notion that has become status quo that Israel speaks for people of Jewish faith internationally. And I will not ever accept a term that spatially decentralizes where my family is from. And part of that is because I, and this is where the conversation gets a little bit out there, I came of age in, in China because my family was a very kind of I was raised by old people who were more or less conservative, even though they were very progressive people. And so I kind of needed to come out of the closet in, in China where I studied abroad. And my grandparents were the kinds of people who had moved to France who like tangentially knew the posh people who were into Mao Zedong and, and philosophies of decolonialism that existed in, in socialism with Chinese characteristics. Anyway, from the time that I was young, I learned Chinese and went to China when I was still at a very impressionable age. And it always very much impressed me, even with the number of issues that I do take with uh, China, of which there are very many, that the Chinese term for China is the central nation. Everyone should consider where they're from to be the central nation. The idea that I am from east of somewhere is fundamentally oppressive and makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I'm not from the Middle East. If you want to say that you're from the Middle East, that's fine. Say that you're from the Middle East, it doesn't bother me. The term Swana doesn't bother me. North Africa is where I'm from. The Arab world is where I'm from. To my mind, where I live in the United States feels oftentimes like an after fact. We often, my mother and I, feel like are we going to end up here in this country that we know to do things like this to our undocumented friends and family? Are we going to live in this country that continues to make it so that where we're from might not exist? Or are we going to go back 
and try to not just be dead weight and retire in North Africa like many Jewish Arab people go back and retire and want to be buried with our ancestors. So I refuse, even though I, of course, stand in solidarity with anybody who is speaking truth to a Zionist worldview, the term Misfahi, because it's not true of me and because I feel that there's so much decolonialism that stands to happen in the way that people view themselves when they stop seeing the world as Hong Kong kind of very illogically being in the West and Beijing, which is three hours north of a plane ride, uh, being magically in the in the East, and then uh, North Africa, which is to the south of the Mediterranean, supposedly being the East, this East that we talk about, and then where do you situate Latin America? It, it, none of it makes sense. And we felt like asking ourselves, my grandmother and I, and I think to a degree before he died, Oscar, the degree to which these kind of crazy, illogical, bull crap things fed into the continued killing and dispossession of people in Palestine and Yemen and in Western Sahara and in all of the the colonized places of the world. Yeah, it's interesting because the Mizrahi Jews have largely become some of the most aggressive and brutal, hardline, right-wing defenders of the occupation, right? And I was thinking about this in the song, Fuck the Police by the NWA. There's a line, because they'll slam you down to the street top, black police showing out for the white cop. And that line really stood out to me during the police uprisings last year when I watched many black and Hispanic cops brutalizing peaceful protesters with a fervor that sometimes, not always, but sometimes superseded the sociopathic tendencies of their white colleagues. And so do you think that there is a parallel that can be drawn here where Mizrahis use brutality against Palestinians? to distance themselves from their own Arab ancestry and to prove loyalty to the Eastern European Zionists? That's such an important question to ask. And I'm afraid that at least as a journalist who was trying to write about that particular part in the book from a a place of journalistic sobriety, it's so uh, impossible to... I I can basically Dr. Phil my grandparents and say how my grandparents were colonized in the mind and and how uh, they emerged from or kind of tangled with that mental colonialism. It's impossible for me to say exactly what happens with people in the context of occupied Palestine. We do know that there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of Jewish people of Arab origin who live in occupied Palestine, who are stopped by police because they're confused for Palestinian people, who are brutalized by police because they're confused for Palestinian people, and that there are very blatant things that they end up saying when it's discovered that they're Jewish, like, I'm Jewish, this uh, kind of treatment is meant for Palestinian people and not for me, that are very telling. We do know that there are civil society organizations within the context of occupied Palestine that are collecting data on rates of college completion, of unemployment, of housing disparities, in which they see the continued marginalization and discrimination against Jewish Arab people that by and large 
uh, in occupied Palestine, the people of our backgrounds uh, continue to hold the lowest paying manual labor jobs, that they live in a hierarchy that was created in 1948, certainly not at the top, and yet very many uh, prop up this system for various reasons, that I think now a little over half of Israeli society is of our backgrounds, and that oftentimes you see people who you could ask the question, are you so vehemently anti-Arab because it has been suggested as a racial epithet against you that you are one? Because you're afraid that some of the leftist voices like my own are suggesting that there are actually quite a lot more Arabs in the context of occupied Palestine than one takes for granted, which is not to say that just because Jewish Arab people are Arab that they aren't settler colonists in that context. They absolutely are. There are a lot of things to say as well about the Jewish left needs to work harder to integrate Jewish Arabs into the fold of anti-Zionist activism, that there are a lot of very valid concerns about the continual otherization and silencing of Jewish Arab perspectives within the fold of anti-Zionist activism within the context of occupied Palestine. I don't know that with an issue as urgent as the continued genocide against the Palestinian people that there's time for people to address the problems between Jewish people of Arab origin and Ashkenazim and other communities of Jewish people. I don't think that there's time in some ways, even though I wrote when we were Arabs for polite discussions of where we're from, because everything about what we're talking about right now, and hopefully when we were Arabs, was this more than a discussion of, oh, my family was Arabi, we like to eat basbusa and listen to Amadbiyev. It's more than that. It's uh, if someone is dying, save that person. Let's not discuss the novelty of somebody having what seemed to be mutually exclusive identities living in one time. Hopefully people picked up the book thinking, oh, this is an interesting, and I know a lot of people who didn't read the book who, who talk to me about it still, which is kind of cute, but slightly irritating. Like, it's fine if you didn't read my book, but don't pretend that you read this book about Jewish Arabs and think, oh, this was about how at his bar mitzvah, he had a belly dancer. It's inconsequential to me, Saraha, that my family ate couscous and that we entajin. It's not that interesting to me that I am a person who identifies with an Arab legacy unless that Arab legacy is in service of a universal human liberation that ultimately comes from me being both a religious Jewish person who believes that I serve the same God as in Islam and in Christianity, and that I am fundamentally a socialist, for lack of a better term, or I believe in what are fundamentally Arab values of not letting people die in the street, believing that people deserve life and dignity, of the the hogra, the kind of like indignation that I feel as a, a North African man, that there's a sense that people, that life is sacred enough that people deserve to live with dignity and that we deserve to live in a way that offers other people that dignity regardless of, of what I am. If I had absolutely nothing to do with this, which I honestly don't, I, I think that it's important, obviously, it's very important for Jewish people not to remain silent right now, 
but also the understanding when some people ask me about my view on the occupation of Palestine and the way forward, my, my answer to them needs to be, ask the Palestinian person that question, never ask me that question. The understanding that somebody who was born in Los Angeles has word to say about Palestine, with the exception of let me try however I can to uplift Palestinian voices, is part of the problem. In addition to popular government-funded science that labeled Mizrahi as uncivilized and less developed than Ashkenazis, there are also instances of Ethiopian Jews being sterilized without their knowledge. Israel has murdered many young Ethiopian men, Solomon Tekka, for example, and over 40 families of Jews from Africa are being deported because, quote, the government was unsure whether they qualified for citizenship under the country's law of return. Whereas any Jew who is born in, say, Connecticut can migrate and get citizenship. Can you speak to how Ashkenazi Zionists cloak their racism in eugenics-based pseudoscience to discriminate and experiment on Jews of color, and how this became a standard practice within a society that claims to be a safe haven for Jews? There is some discussion of that in When We Were Arabs in the way that there were tests on early Jewish Arabs too, and that our, our children, uh, women gave birth in hospitals and their children disappeared and were funneled into Ashkenazi families for the sake of whitening. There are a number of very well-documented cases like this that I discuss in the book, and the way that they're happening now that Jewish Arabs have been to a degree, although never completely more integrated into the fold of the occupying society. Now, Jewish Africans uh, from sub-Saharan Africa have become the target. It very much shows how there are so many people in the way that Franz Fanon describes colonial societies to us who suffer different, different echelons in different ways. And, and the difference is very important to the politic of divide and conquer from the overall kind of colonial project. They suffer to different degrees and they expect or are told that there'll be various degrees of social mobility for them for the purpose of Jewish Arabs never finding common cause with non-Jewish Palestinian people, which I say to nod to this group of people who, who disappeared or kind of evaporated after 1948, who the, the uh, Hanan Ashrawi describes as the, as the Jewish people who were Palestinian, who existed before 1948, that we hear of so rarely, who, whose identity was subsumed by this project as well. It's also for the purpose of diluting what happens to one group, in my opinion, when you, when you talk about what happens to Jewish Arab people and the need to fix what's happening to Jewish people of Arab origin within uh, the context of occupied Palestine, you stop talking about the real targets who are Palestinian people, who continue to be Palestinian people. There, there's so much confusion. There's so much division and conquest and, and, and trying to inculcate people with their differences so that it's hard for them to find common cause. And the ultimate kind of objective is very blatantly, as you put it, the transposition of a white society onto what hadn't previously been what we conceive of as a white society in this current world hierarchy.
Yeah. Lara, you want to weigh in? Because uh, we're talking about uplifting Palestinian voices, but it's just been two Jews talking a lot on the Palestine pod. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm honestly intently <laughs> listening and learning. I mean, I, there's so many things, Masoud, you've, you've touched on so many points. I mean, you know, just even the notion of the Palestinian Jewish community. My Sido tells me stories about Palestinian Jews. I mean, that is, for me, the last generation that even knew who these people were. And people ask me all the time on social media, do you know any Palestinian Jews? Maybe you could be in conversation with a Palestinian Jew and hear about their perspective. And my answer is always, I actually have no idea if there are any left today that still identify as Palestinian Jews that 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 trace their presence in Palestine to before Zionism. And they were of the community of people that my grandfather tells me so fondly of when he describes growing up in Gaza in a house where his neighbors on one side were Palestinian Christians and his neighbors on the other side were Palestinian Jews. And of course, my family is Palestinian Muslim. And and how he describes essentially that, well, they were all Palestinian. They all had the same culture. They all spoke the same language. They all ate the same food. They had the same cultural references. They had the same experiences. They lived amongst each other, right? So so there wasn't this separation in, in life in Palestine before Zionism. And I think that's something that people don't really understand about Palestine. That is that when we say that before 1948, Jews and Christians and Muslims lived peacefully and that there were, you know, immigrants that came from other countries. I mean, there's a sizable Armenian population in Palestine, for example, that came following World War One, and they were integrated into Palestine. I mean, they even refer to themselves as Palestinian Armenians. So it's not unusual for Palestine to meld together and, and know many different cultures and to, to be a land of its people, right? Whoever is on the land and, and grew up on the land and integrated into the land and, and, and certainly uh, integrated with the people of the land, you know, the natives of the land. So Palestinian Jews, yes, they're, they're real. They were there. I know somebody who is a Palestinian Jew from Gaza. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would be amazing. Let's try to get, you know, let's try to be in conversation with them. Because I mean, if anything, they've also been really cut out of this conversation about what it means to be Palestinian, you know, being Palestinian is not mm -hmm. just about being Muslim and Christian either. I mean, there's Palestinians who don't subscribe to any faith group. There's Palestinians who are Jewish. There's Palestinians who probably belong to a fourth, fifth or sixth faith group. Being Palestinian is, is not about being a religion, right? It, it's about being from the land and tracing your origin to the land throughout generations. And, you know, not just looking back and saying 2000 years ago, there were some Jews that lived here and now I'm a Jew. So I guess that means that I have the right to come here. You know, that would, that would mean that me as a Muslim, I would have the right to show up in Southern Spain today and say, hi, there were Muslims here, you know, 800 years ago. So that gives me the right to kick out every single person in Southern Spain and replace myself with these people. And, and not only that, but it grants the right to every other Muslim from any other country in the world to come settle in Southern Spain, right? I mean, that's an absurd notion. This is the Zionist logic that we're talking about. If we were to just flip the script and say, imagine if, you know, the Muslim community were to do this with a place that Muslims lived in the past, we would try to sell this as some sort of a, a right that that is not to be questioned. I mean, it's absolutely absurd, right? I think everybody knows that King Leopold was just returning to the cradle of civilization. 
That was a colonization joke. Did it, did it not <laughs> land? It didn't. It did not land. It seems like it didn't land. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> colonization is funny, but yeah, that one. I had to think about it a little bit. I wanted to just go back to something that you said a little bit earlier, which was this notion that you know, if anyone is to pay for the experiences of Arab Jews, of the dispossession and the uprooting that they went through from their own home countries, that it should be Israel, right? And I think it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, you have Israel, which sold this story to an entire faith community all across the region, but also all across the world. And that is that you're not safe where you are. You have to come here because here you'll be safe. You know, recently we had an example where following terrorist attacks in France a few years ago when a kosher supermarket was attacked and Benjamin Netanyahu came to France and he addressed the French Jewish community, he told them, well, you're not safe here, you should come to Israel. He weaponized that attack as an opportunity to advance the colonial ambitions of the Zionist project. So we see examples of this until today. But what I think is interesting is in the case of Arab Jews, they were sold the same spiel, you know, come to Israel, leave your homes, you're not, you're not going to be, you know, you, you don't fit in where, where, where you're from. But then when they arrived in Palestine, well, they weren't treated very well in Palestine either by the Zionist project. Just a few days ago, Haaretz reported that Ben-Gurion's journals, which were written between 1948 and 1953, exposed many secrets, including the extensive surveillance of Misrahi Jews upon their arrival to Palestine. So on the one hand, you know, they're being told, come, it's going to be great, you know, Palestine, it's your land, there's nobody here, you know, you're going to, you're going to have everything you want. And on the other hand, they arrive and they're subject to this mistreatment. I mean, to me, it sounds like Israel is kind of like Ja Rule and the Mizrahis are like the fire festival attendees show up and it's like not at all what they said it was going to be like. And it's a scam and they're eating like cheese sandwiches waiting for a flight back to where they came from. Israel is Ja Rule is perhaps <laughs> the best metaphor I've ever heard for Israel. Israel is ja Rule. I don't know. But that's immediately what I Murder! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's my motherfucking name? You know, like these people were scammed. They were, they were scammed. They were just scammed. They were sold a lie. And of course, all of Zionism I love the, based- the cheese sandwich part. I, I think <laughs> I'm still sticking to because I think it's, it is true that a lot of people even though I don't believe in like genetics and uh, racial sciences, that a lot of us people from North Africa and the Middle East seem to be lactose intolerant. And so cheese sandwiches would be, especially having to live in the shanty towns that they forced us into when we arrived. Oh, wait, sorry, what was the question? I don't know that there is a question, but I mean, to me, it's just like, right? It's, it's, just, it's just commenting. You know, we talk a lot about the effects of Zionism on Palestinians, and rightfully so, because we are the number one victims of the Zionist project. But we've been talking on the Palestine pod about how 
the oppression that radiates from the state of Israel is not limited to Palestinians only. We were talking with Steve Salida about how Israel has armed Mexico in its counterinsurgency efforts against the Zapatistas, how it armed El Salvador in the 1980s. We talk frequently about how Israel obviously has its police training po programs with officers in the United States, and that obviously leads to a lot of injustice and uh, militarization of the police and uh, police violence. So there's this notion that wherever there's oppression, Israel is not far. And it's, it's an internal thing, obviously, with Palestinians being the first victims. But also, you know, what your ancestors, what your grandparents' generation went through, I think is, is a part of the story that is forgotten and we do need to talk about. To bring it into, because for me, what it does is it reinforces this notion, right, that we're not free until we're all free, that wherever there is injustice, it does have this radiating effect and it does affect other communities, right? So if you don't care about Palestinians, okay, fine, but don't think that you're going to escape the scope and the, or the reach of state violence and colonialism. First they came for the Palestinians and I said nothing because I wasn't Palestinian. Exactly. By the way, can you imagine what it is that's in Ben Gurion's private diary? Like oh, it's the a things mess. that he didn't publish? The man was not shy about publishing. You know what I mean? So can yeah. you imagine what he kept secret? It's actually a mess. And I, I, I actually need to start paying for Hot Ritz because this was a premium article that I could only read the first few paragraphs of. But in the first few paragraphs, there was already reference to how Ben Gurion is scheming about how trying to get Palestinian refugees to leave. Right. And and this is, of course, after do not pay for Haaretz. <laughs> I'll show you how to download it. OK, thank you. <laughs> but right, he's talking about he's scheming about get, trying to get Palestinians to leave. And this is, of course, in the aftermath of the Nekba, where the majority of the Palestinian population was already expelled from Palestine. And so there's this continued insistence on ethnic cleansing as a policy from the very beginning. And, you know, even the Nekba wasn't enough. Right. And then also his journals speak about the rapes that were committed by the Zionist soldiers against the native Palestinian population. And, and he actually details them in, in, in some gruesome detail. So that's pretty gross. It, it always strikes me as very interesting that this initial kind of group of people who, who occupied Palestine said things that were very blatantly just kind of astounding that any person who's Jewish of Arab origin would take exception to with how they describe us and whether we were, for example, uh, genetically evolved was very often a question that the top brass of the early Israeli administration would often ask if, if Jewish Moroccans and Jewish Yemenis and Jewish Iraqis were fully genetically evolved. There were kind of conversations about whether we were civilized or how to best how best to civilize us if people were aware of the many things that they say which you can read them in when we were arabs or you can google them anywhere and see that uh, reds talks about them a lot of different sources talk about what they what they said at the very beginning these are all actually common features of colonial powers right this is not anything new the british did the same thing the french did the same thing the Zionists, the Americans. Is, the Americans did the same thing. The Zionists essentially kept it going. Can you imagine talking about being the civilized one when you don't take your shoes off inside? I saw soldiers 
running through Al-Aqsa with their shoes on. That's not civilized. Yeah, I mean, none of that was civilized, right? Their entire presence in Al-Aqsa, which was extremely violent, stun grenades, sound bombs, all sorts of weapons that I don't even know what they are. And the notion that you can't even get through your night prayer without having the third holiest site in your faith invaded and attacked is something that we would never accept for any other faith group. We certainly would not accept it for Jews, you know, in Israel, right? We would never accept that. We would never accept this type of attack on a sacred Jewish site. And of, and of course we shouldn't, right? Because Palestine should be a land for all religions to be able to exercise their freedom of religion. That being said, that doesn't mean that one religion should have a supreme right over another people, especially when those people are the native people of the land. So yeah, it's been, it's really horrifying what's been happening in Jerusalem. And I've just been glued to my phone. I think like most of us have. Speaking of Jerusalem, actually, Shortly after Israel occupied East Jerusalem in 1967, it completely destroyed the city's Moroccan quarter, a neighborhood that existed for 700 years. Its residents were only given two hours notice before demolitions. Why do you think this area was targeted specifically? Masood. To stamp out any kind of Arab culture that people might identify with specifically because the remnants of the Moroccan quarter in Jerusalem look very much like our homeland. There are still features, even though people who live there no longer live there, that look very much like Morocco. Existence of a Moroccan quarter that was at once North African and Palestinian, there obviously because of pilgrimages for thousands of years, it, it was dangerous. It, it stands to reason. It's, what would the potential political fallout have been for the Zionist administration of physical reminders to Jewish Moroccan people who sang Shabi music in Hebrew and in Arabic when they first uh, occupied Palestine and who, who still very much at least at weddings and uh, mitzvot kind of identify with a North African or Middle Eastern legacy. What would that solidarity have looked like if they were made to look at people who are Part of what, from before 1948 and since time immemorial, were part of this overall fabric of thousands of miles and different diverse kinds of peoples who, who found enough common cause to be able to look at one another and say, you know what, you're like my family. That's what I do when I go to a different Arab country. I feel like even though, by and large, my family doesn't exist anymore, that when I go to an Arab country, it reminds me of my family. That's the reason for identifying with Arabness outside of trying to stop a little bit in my way of the uh, dispossession and genocide that's happening in Palestine and elsewhere in the Arab world right now. It's because I lost the people who raised me, the only people who remind me of these people who raised me in the manners and the humor and the food are people who uh, in many circumstances don't look or act or do anything like me, but there's always a common thread that runs throughout the, the Arab legacy that I, I believe in and Sometimes I feel like a fool for believing in it, especially with the blow to me that the normalization in Morocco of all places was. There is a common thread that I find with people who I encounter from anywhere in the Arab world. And because my family has known a completely separate and incomparable kind of dispossession, 
the majority of my friends end up being Palestinian people, I think, within the Arab American context, because we dare to believe beyond the embarrassments dealt us by the administrations of the Arab world, that there is something that exists among the Arab peoples that will one day liberate Palestine, and that it will happen not in the distant future, but now. Yeah, in your book, which I got to say, I thoroughly enjoyed, I learned so much from it. So thank you so much for writing it. You mentioned children who are not bent to the colonial will pose a great danger. Can you expand on that? What does it mean to be bent to the colonial and what is the danger post? A policy document that existed on the part of Jewish French dignitaries who had traveled to Algeria at a time when Jewish French people were trying to solidify their, their place within the anti-Jewish framework of France at the time by proving how they could instrumentalize or weaponize Jewish communities in the Arab world against non-Jewish Arabs. They understood that there were cleavages within Arab societies that had predated the conquest of our nations that they intended to exacerbate. And that the people who posed the most concern were the people who hadn't yet started wearing the ostensible dress of our Jewish community in Arab societies. It was the children who were indistinguishable because they didn't wear different dress from Muslim and from Christian people in different Arab societies and from other groups of people. And, and uh, that's not to say that we weren't at various points in history, because the, the Zionist idea paints us as constantly having been at odds with our Muslim compatriots since the dawn of time. That's not to say that when they grew up, they were at odds and living a constant nightmare or anything. That's the Zionist narrative of our histories. It's also not to say that there weren't uh, periods of extreme uh, autocracy and that uh, the Arab world, like the rest of the world, throughout history has struggled for accountable government, like we're struggling for accountable government in the United States today. It's to say that when you're young, you don't necessarily wear a kippah. You aren't necessarily identifiable as being different from a, a Muslim who doesn't wear a kippah. And, and uh, the, the Jewish uh, headdress that I used to wear when I was little. There's a lot of things that you refer to in the book where you're painting a picture of what Arab society looked like at the time when your grandparents were growing up and were young adults. And it really struck me because, you know, we often hear about, for example, how Palestinian Christians will wake up Palestinian Muslims during Ramadan for the pre-dawn meal before they begin a day of fasting. And there's an anecdote in your book to how your grandmother was actually involved with cooking a lot of the desserts and pastries that Muslims would eat during Ramadan as well. And again, this is not, you know, her holiday. You also speak about my great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather who, who, who would fast because his co-workers were fasting and so he did it out of solidarity. And it really struck me because I started to envisage a relationship between Arab Jews and Arab Muslims that very much resembles the relationship between Arab Muslims and Arab Christians, at least in Palestine. I mean, this is not to say that there aren't tensions amongst these groups, I'm sure there are, and I'm sure they are, uh, they are inflamed by you know political and economic realities, right? But at least on a cultural level, in Palestine, you can't really tell a difference between a Palestinian Muslim and a Christian, right? You really can't. I mean, 
we dress the same, we talk the same, we say alhamdulillah, we say mashallah, we say Allahu Akbar, we say la ilaha illallah, we have all of the same references. And you wouldn't necessarily know unless the Christian went out of their way to dress a certain way to make their religion apparent. But there's a lot of things where we sort of overlap. And I think what I enjoyed about your book was reading some of these anecdotes and realizing that, oh, wait a minute, this was a part of your grandparents' and your great-grandparents' life. And there was a point in time when Arab Jews and, and Arab Muslims were very much in brotherhood and sisterhood with one another. And that there, there wasn't this distinction, there wasn't this separateness, this distance that we see today. That, I think that that emanates from something that I find to be a common thread throughout what, may, what has made Jewish and Arab people two mutually exclusive identities, is that we don't see ourselves oftentimes within the framework of anything else that's going on in the Arab world. So Jewish people don't see that their relationship to uh, Islam and to Muslim people is very similar to the relationship of Christian people or Muslim minority sects to the greater Sunni kind of uh, uh, framework of our societies. The, when we say that we were victimized at different points in history, it's often described in Zionist histories of how our, our societies were as very much fixated on Jewish people when the reality is that the Arab world, to be Arab is to have experienced this kind of persecution by a, a government. To be Arab is to, is to have a legacy of uh, suffering from lack of government accountability that exists since time immemorial, and that that isn't specific to Arab people, that there's nothing about dictatorship that's specific to Arab people, that uh, the dignitaries who went to North Africa to decide how best to instrumentalize Jewish North Africans against non-Jewish North African people uh, were themselves trying to weaponize those Jewish North African people to better solidify the safety and the stability and the use of Jewish French people within the context of uh, a Jewish European society. We never have the opportunity because we're not allowed to call ourselves Arab in the status quo that, that has been created by the state of Israel to uh, say, you know what, the, the trend of Phoenicianism that exists in the Levant is very similar to the trend of not wanting to identify as Arab among Jewish North African or Jewish Middle Eastern people. Yeah, for uh, those who don't know, that's, that's that whole, I'm not Lebanese, I'm Phoenician, you know, I'm not Arab, I'm Phoenician thing. I'll get a lot exactly. of flack from the Lebanese listeners, but you know, it is what it is. And, and to be honest with you, when we were Arabs, uh, in terms of the identification, in terms of the definition of, of Arabness that I, the recipe for Arabness that I try to come to as a conclusion of speaking to many people who've been thinking about this a lot longer than I have, includes choice as a central function of Arabness. If you are a, a person who was born in Palestine and don't believe yourself to be Arab, maybe you're not, you're not Arab in my view. If you, if you don't identify as Arab, that, that's central. To, to being Arab. I am Arab, and, and the most crucial part of me being Arab is that I've chosen it. I would never tell a, a Jewish person who's of Arab origin, you're an Arab and you just didn't know it. I would say you, you have the opportunity to, to decide whether you're, you're Arab or not. We, we 
every identity is a, a construct. We uh, inevitably decide to identify with something or to not. I am a, an Arab American man of Jewish faith. Ultimately, I think that within the North African context, and you may have encountered this in, in Paris just because there are more Tunisian people, but there are a lot of Tunisian people who identify with the Carthaginian aspect of our history. There are people who identify with the Amazia uh, uh, component of our history. There are people who identify with these. God bless. I am not the kind of Arabist who existed after 1948. I am the one who is a continuation of the Nakba era when people, including many Jewish Arab people, were beginning to ask themselves what uh, Arabness would be moving forward in the future in a decolonially minded way. If you're a Tunisian person and you don't identify with Arab, that's on you. But I would ask, why? That, to my mind, is the most important question to ask. Because I think that very often, if I were to Dr. Phil, people who are in that category to include Daida before we had any of those conversations, she wouldn't have known the answer and interrogating yourself about whether uh, disavowing that kind of Arabness is fundamentally racist, is fundamentally a rejection of, of uh, an identity that we've been told to view as a condemnable, murderable identity in the context of our home societies. And from, to my mind, many of the people who have uh, insisted against Arabness within Tunisian society or, or Lebanese society or any of these contexts or uh, Egyptian society aren't really listening to what the vast majority of people who still believe in the Arab identity are saying. In the context of the Judaism that I was taught, when you have something in Judaism called a rodef, when you have something chasing you that's threatening your life, things that are not okay, like uh, the prohibition on any kind of work, fire making or anything on Shabbat, are okay. Uh, the lives of God's creations are under threat right now. Every single prayer that I make includes, and Jewish prayers, includes the, the full liberation of the Palestinian people and the end to the killing of 16-year-old children with beautiful faces and futures that have been stolen by people who are professing a religion that they don't know a fucking thing about. Yes. I could not have said it better myself. In doing research for this podcast, I came across Algerian Jewish singer Salim Halali. He performed in Jerusalem in the 1960s and said in Arabic from the stage, long live the Arab nation. The audience then threw things at him. He left the stage and never stepped foot in occupied Palestine ever again. Can you speak to the reactions many Israelis have for people who do embrace their Jewish Arab ancestry? Uh, first, a nod to Salim Hilali, who uh, I think maybe if you've been to the Grand Mosque of Paris, you've, you've yes. appreciated that that space is both kind of touristy and gorgeous physically, but also such a powerful place because it saved a lot of Jewish North African people uh, during the war by falsifying uh, Muslim identity documents and a grave yes. for Salim Halali's supposed father in a Muslim cemetery. Salim Halali uh, was, like me, a, a gay Jewish North African man who uh, identified with uh, the Arab legacy, who was friends with Um Kalthum, who threw a wild party, uh, continued to live in North Africa, 
uh, long after 1948 and 1967 and was complimented as being one of the finest singers in the Arab tradition by Um Kalthoum, if you can believe such a thing, and had an elephant in his backyard. He was a very whimsical, beautiful soul. To say something like that in the context of uh, a Zionist audience, to say it with maybe he understood or maybe he didn't understand at that time that uh, he, it would be received with violence, is something that is an inspiration to me, that was an inspiration for this book. You know, I just want to reflect on this idea that like Arabness is a choice because it, you know, so much of being Palestinian is rejecting the label of, oh, well, you're just Arabs, right? Which is imposed on us by the Zionist entity. Oh, well, you're just Arabs. You know, you can just go to Jordan because you're just Jordanian anyway. You guys just came from Jordan. I mean, these are all lies, of course. But this attempt to paint us with, you know, a, a broad brush and to homogenize us and to reduce us is what the Zionist state does when they use this label of Arab. It's it's an insult. And so then the reaction is, no, we're Palestinian. Yes, we're Palestinian Arabs. We are Arab people, but we are Palestinian. And that that is distinct from the culture and the traditions and the dialect and the entire history of our neighbors, right? And so much of that is also a result of historical events that were beyond our control. But my grandfather tells me about a time when, he, you know, his father would take a train from Gaza to Damascus. And he would go to work in Damascus and then he would come back on the weekends to Gaza. And I, this is, I mean, this is just not, this is just not what life looks like in 2021. You can't take a train from Gaza to Damascus. It just doesn't exist anymore. And so I think in a lot of conceptualizing my own identity, there's been this emphasis on I'm Palestinian first. And yes, I speak Arabic and I have an Arabic culture. And, you know, if I speak to a Lebanese friend or if I speak to a Jordanian friend or if I speak to a Syrian friend, there are commonalities. But we are also distinct. And so that's something that I think is is interesting because on the one hand, Arab for you is a way to empower yourself based on the narrative that was imposed on you, which is you're not Arab, right? So the Zionists tell you you're not Arab. Whereas for me, that's what they say I am. And so I reject it by saying, no, I'm Palestinian. You have it all wrong. You're trying to erase me by calling me only Arab. And I'm not only Arab, I'm Palestinian. And I have this unique experience and I have this unique perspective. And my grandparents were born in Gaza and my great-grandparents were born in Yaffa. And that makes me Palestinian. And, you know, we have this culture of Tatris and we have, you know, beautiful songs that are played on the Oud and the Qanun. And we have folklore and we have poems and we have things that make us unique as Palestinians. And so there's this identity that was created as a result of these sort of historical circumstances, colonialism and the extension of... Zionism after British and French colonialism, which really pushed us to affirm our Palestinianness first, I think. Maybe quickly just before we wrap up, why don't you tell us what are you working on right now? What are you what are you up to? What are you doing? What's you know, what are your next projects? What do you want to do? What 
what's giving you joy right now? I, else? um, yeah, I, so I think not a whole lot to be honest. <laughs> I want to continue in the future to do art, but I'm not 100% certain that uh, I'm very into trying to find happiness right now, whatever that means. And then also being able to continue to support causes for international human liberation and solidarity in ways that make sense to me. I've been very lucky that people with beautiful platforms like the Palestine Pod have invited me to speak. There have been uh, people who are on every kind of uh, end of the political spectrum who've invited me to speak in a way that I find to be antithetical to my ideals, who either haven't read the book or who want me to fulfill a, a certain kind of a purpose or who want Oscar and Daida to fulfill a certain kind of a purpose. And that in the same way that I don't eat pork and shellfish because I'm Jewish, I am in the same way that I don't buy any products that break BDS because I believe in Palestinian liberation, I pick and choose what I'm doing in the future in a way that is in service of international human liberation. To speak on a podcast that's starting something that's truly powerful and geared toward human liberation that's fundamentally about human people living a dignified and integral way is fundamentally what Oscar and Daida were about. And I know that this is the perfect venue for me to speak about my grandparents' legacy and the political theories that emanate from it because we are everyday people. We're not activists. We are everyday human beings who refuse to ignore the humanity and dignity of our fellow human beings and who believe fundamentally because we are Jewish and because we are Arab that human life is sacred and that human dignity is sacred. Beautifully said. Masoud, you are such an inspiration and you've actually brought me to tears. So that's the first time this has happened on the Palestine oh. pod. I hope that one day we will have an opportunity to meet in real life. Please. Because ever since I first heard you speak on my friend Yasser Luati's podcast. I mean, I listened to the interview probably three times. Shout out to Yasser, because the thing is, his <laughs> podcast is brilliant. And he's always, like you guys, so prepared. And I, on that podcast, felt very hot. <laughs> he was a real gracious host. And you're very kind to say that. Yeah. No, but I'm so I'm so happy he invited you, because that was my introduction to you. And then I got the book, and I read the book. And there were so many aspects of it that resonated with me and that I, I saw myself in. Mm. And I, I thought, wow, how amazing. You know, he, this is my Arab Jewish brother and, and he's talking about his life and he's talking about his family's life and, and there's, there's so much overlap. And I was just, it was really, it was, it was a beautiful journey. So thank you so much. And the book is When We Were Arabs. Buy it anywhere except for Amazon unless you have no choice. And... After reading the book, I felt closer to Jews and I felt closer to Arabs at large. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. You guys are my siblings and uh, it's, it feels so important to be surrounded by kindred spirits right now, especially. So yes. I hope that other people listening also feel a sense of uh, family and, and friendship at, at this time. And I'm sure whatever it is that you go to do next, whatever your next project is, it's going to be wonderful. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much Masoud. for coming on. 
Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. We so appreciate you listening, engaging with our content, following us, subscribing, leaving review, all of that. It means so much, and we definitely see it all. If you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. Right? All of our sources get uploaded onto our website, thepalestinepod.com. And we just so appreciate everybody who's been involved. Thank y'all for listening. Have a great day. Um, often when there is dissent expressed in the United States against policies of the Israeli government, um, uh, people here are called anti-Semitic. Uh, what is your response to that as an Israeli Jew? Well, it's a trick. We always use it. When from Europe somebody is criticizing Israel, then we bring up the Holocaust. When in this country people are criticizing Israel, then they are anti-Semitic. And the organization is strong and has a lot of money. And the, the ties between uh, Israel and the American estab- Jewish establishment are very strong and they are strong in this country as you know uh, they have power which it's okay they are talented people and they have power money and uh, media and other things and their attitude is Israel my country right or wrong the identification and they are not ready to hear criticism and it's very easy to blame people who criticize certain acts of the Israeli government as anti-Semitics and to bring up the Holocaust and the suffering of the Jewish people and that's, that justify everything we do to the Palestinians.